From Vintage City Church in Fort Collins, Colorado, it's the Vintage Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Greg Sanders. First Corinthians chapter 8. Now let's talk about food that's been sacrificed to idols. You think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge, and while knowledge may make us feel important, it's love that builds up the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there's only one god. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, but some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything and we live for him. And there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we've been given life. However, not all believers know this. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. And so when they eat food that has been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods and their weak consciences are violated. It's true that we can't win God's approval by what we eat. We don't lose anything if we don't eat it. We don't gain anything if we do. But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Four, If others see you with your quote-unquote superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. Holy Spirit, would you be with us as we look at this text? As we study it, um, Lord, there's lots of ideas that probably have circulated in in the history of the church about what this is about. And we just ask that you would open our eyes to see uh, exactly what it is and help us make applications that cause us to be more capable of following you in a more excellent way. So bless this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, regarding your question about food that's been offered to idols. So shortly after the, Paul answers this letter, shortly after the time that he answers this, if we look at chapter 8, within a short amount of time, maybe about eight months to a year, Acts 15 will tell us that the Jerusalem Council, which is at the time, it's kind of the the overseeing council for the whole church, the church at large. Because remember, the church is young at this point, maybe, maybe two, three years old. The Jerusalem council will, will declare that eating meat offered to idols should be completely avoided by every believer. But at the moment that Paul's writing this text, this issue was open for choice. The choice was to be made on personal conviction. So we could say that it's a difference of There was a difference of perspective, and there were strong opinions connected to it. And so in this way, really, both parties that were looking at this problem, meat offered to idols, were right in their perspective. The first thing I see in that, if we just look at this overview, that 
we have to understand in our lives that there is a difference between our convictions and freedoms that come from what we see in Scripture interpretively. There's a difference between that and what is specifically actually declared in Scripture. If Scripture says, don't do this, then we don't do it. There's no room for debate, correct? Are you with me? But if there's something where we feel like we have a sense of we shouldn't do this, it's not really said in Scripture, but it's my conviction that we shouldn't, it's great to hold those that way. But interpretation is what I believe something intends or means. It's my perspective on how to apply the Scripture. It's not wrong to hold that. But to call someone else out or accuse someone else of sin based on my perspective, not based on something that's expressly stated, is wrong. I would actually love to tell you that that's the foundation of legalism. Legalism says external rules create the purity, the holiness. And all through Scripture, are there things that we see that we... Don't murder. Yep, that's a pretty clear one. There's no middle ground on that one. No matter how you feel about said person, don't kill them. (laughs) Don't commit adultery. No matter what you feel, no matter where your emotions are at, the line in the sand scripturally is don't do it. Don't steal. No matter what you think you should write on your taxes, don't steal. These are clear things in scripture. But there are lots and lots of other things that I would categorize as I don't know. And so what Paul's dealing with here, he's responding to a disagreement that's come into this. Remember, we go back to the genesis of why Paul's writing this book. He's writing Corinthians in response to some questions because he's trying to help this young church form correctly. And so what he's dealing with right now is he's dealing with an argument that's come up. There's been a problem happen over this thing, meat offered to idols. So I want to take a look at that. What is meat offered to idols? In order to understand that, we probably need to have a historical understanding of Corinth at the time. Corinth is a multicultural city that has had a long history at this point of temple worship. The dominant temple that was worshipped in was the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a Greek goddess of love, beauty, sexuality, and pleasure. So to understand the magnitude of the temple, we have to understand the significance of Corinth. Corinth is located in an incredibly strategic location in such, and we had a map, I don't know if it pulls up okay, but if, if you look at Corinth, Corinth had control of all the major trade routes to the north and south and to the east and west. In fact, the trade route that Corinth was most known for is one that they were early in, they pioneered it. They would port ships on one side. There's the Ionian Sea at one side. So if you look at Corinth and, and it went away. Oh, there. If you look at Corinth, and there's this little dot which shows where Corinth is at. There's this inlet here. There's this inlet here. Corinth sits right here. It's this entire land bridge, this entire strip. It's about seven miles wide. See all this big chunk of land down here? So Corinth did something where ships could come into port there, get out of port, 
They would carry them across a road called the Achaean Way, and it was a, they had built a, a wide road out of granite, and they would port these manual labor, lift the ships out of the water, and then systematically, slowly roll them across this road and dock them back in on the other side, and it would save three to four weeks of travel for the sailors. So they had a, a fabulous financial base. Now, not only did it save three to four weeks, out on the tip which of this, of this island and this, this chunk of land, it was noted for really bad storms and really bad squalls. So Corinth didn't just have an easier route, they had a safer route. And then if you look north to south, Corinth's, Corinth controls all the trade from this direction. It all goes through their city. So there's no way for anyone to get down here without going through Corinth, unless they wanted to go all the way out and around, get in the water and come back down. So Corinth, as you can imagine, if we were going to give it a modern-day city, it sits somewhere, if you could take Las Vegas and Amsterdam and Los Angeles and blend them all together, that's probably an accurate picture of what Corinth was like. Incredibly savvy financially. Incredibly culturally savvy. Multiple cultures blending together. And how many understand that when, when humanity's left to its own devices, it generally becomes hedonistic, right? It generally becomes corrupt. So this temple of Aphrodite was a temple that, because of who she was in Greek mythology, the goddess of beauty and, and sexuality and, and sensuality, the way the temple worship happened at Aphrodite's temple was there was a thousand male prostitutes and there was a thousand female prostitutes at any one time. And all of these travelers and all of this commerce would come into the city. And what they called temple worship looked much more like, like a, a pavilion or a mall or a marketplace. And they would go in and you can, you can imagine that it doesn't take a lot of, of thought to consider what's happening happening. Prostitution is a massive part of the culture of Corinth. When you understand Corinth that way, a lot of what Paul begins to teach makes much, much more sense because he's dealing with very clear contextual issues. In fact, Wednesday night we had a Q&A time for chapter 7 and we're doing it again this Wednesday night where we'll just sit down if you have questions or thoughts about what we studied in chapter 7. It was a blast to sit and talk and one of the things that came out of it was we realized that Paul says things to the Corinthian church that he doesn't say to any other churches. Which means that he's pastoring them very specifically. And so we have to be really, really careful about how we extract this stuff and try to apply it to our lives. Because it was said to a specific group of people for a specific reason. So in order to understand how to apply it to our lives, we need to understand the context of why it was given. So at these temple, you can imagine that if, when, when we were looking at that map, it's a, it's a small land area, which means there's not going to be a lot of livestock that's able to be sustained on that land. So the majority of their livestock was being brought in from other places. The majority of the livestock being brought in was controlled by the temple of Aphrodite. It was their commerce. And so what they would do is as, they, as this temple would make sacrifices, the way people would worship at the temple is they would come have dinner at the temple they would eat an animal that had been sacrificed, and then the expectation was that they would hire a prostitute to finish out their worship. That is what Corinth was known for. And so there's, there's people within the church, this young church, and that's all they've known. They've grown up in this culture. That's the only thing they've been around. They wanted to eat meat. They wanted to have a balanced diet of protein because every once in a while you can only eat so many Caesar salads, and they wanted to move into to meat and they wanted to have good food, they would go to the temple and they would have dinner. 
They'd buy, they'd buy meat to eat. Because it was the... Most scholars will agree that all, or if not almost all, of the meat that was available in the city of Corinth had to be purchased through the temple. So there's some believers that saw no problem with it because they looked at it and their answer was, hey, Jesus, Jesus died. My sin's been covered. If you think about Galatians, Galatians says it was for freedom that Christ set us free, not for new law. There was still yet another part of the church that was horrified. For them, it, they could not believe someone would do that. How could you willingly, openly eat meat that you know has been offered to a demonic God? By, by doing that, you're taking part in this and you're affirming this system. And you could imagine all the arguments and how they would roll. And you could see how both parties have a fairly decent argument, right? They're both kind of right. Have you ever been in a situation with someone where you know you're right and they know they're right and you don't know what to do? And so that's really what Paul's dealing with here. And he, he says, you know, we, we know we all have knowledge about the issue. And he uses these quotes, we all have knowledge about the issue. What's he saying? He's saying, I get it, I get it. You've, you've, how many have ever said something like this? This is one of my personal Greg Sanders quotes. I don't hold any opinions that I didn't clearly think through. You can imagine how difficult that would be to argue with. Because in my mind, I've already thought it through. I've thought through all the possibilities. And so anything that's, going to dis anything that's in disagreement with my opinion, my native instinct generally is to think it's wrong. Now Jesus has done a lot of work to teach me how to go, huh, could be, it's possible. So these people had strong, strong opinions. And so Paul, Paul basically steps in and says, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get you have knowledge. But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. While knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. And I just want to give you maybe an idea. Can I do this in church? How many could think of something in our culture right now that might be similar to meat offered to idols? An issue for the church, because this is the church that Paul's dealing with. Anybody got any ideas? Something right now today, a modern, relevant thing that could be viewed this way in the church, where some people, yeah, Matt? Maybe like uh, clothing, like clothing you purchase. Clothing? Yeah, okay, so some of the fair trade clothing, some of the clothing that's made through slave labor, there's people feel that. Andy, are you raising your hand? Or are you just yawning? Alcohol. Tattoos. Now we're getting to, we realize, oh wait, there's some stuff right now in our culture that I would say of those three, Alcohol is a pretty clear one. If you, if you grew up like I did, you were told that if you drank, you were kind of going to hell. <laughs> they couldn't prove it, but they were pretty sure. <laughs> they were wrong. They were <laughs> 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 oh. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Paul seems to say this. It's not an issue of right or wrong. Anytime we're looking at something that we believe, that we know is not clearly stated in Scripture. Now, please don't send me all the arguments about alcohol. I know them. I've studied it pretty deeply. Trust me. Tattoos, same thing. I get it. My issue is 
if the scriptures aren't fundamentally black and white, then love becomes the rule. And that's what Paul's trying to get at with them. And he, there's a couple nuggets I just want to share with us out of this. Number one, sometimes we choose... I'm just going to not move. I'm going to stand right here. I don't know that it'll ever be possible, but I'm going to try. Sometimes we choose to limit our freedom, not because it's wrong, but because it protects others. You see, the central issue for Paul isn't the meat or the idolatry or even the demonic worship in the temple. What he's aimed at in the church is how our freedom choices reveal our maturity and our heart. And so he counsels this Corinthian culture that their behavior shouldn't be guided by only what they know. But it should also be guided by its effect on others. Have we ever considered that? That we live in such a covenant in the kingdom that even though I know something's right for me, if I know that the choice I make that's right for me is going to hurt somebody else, that the cause of love tells me I should lay down my rights, even though I'm right and it's legal, I'm going to lay that down because I'm going to choose what benefits other people around me. I just had a, this week while I was studying this and last week, I had a thought. What if this isn't about alcohol or tattoos or clothing? What if this starts leaking into our marriages, husbands? What if the way we handle our wives becomes much more about the issue of the law of love and less about whether or not we're right or wrong? What about if the way we handle our kids, parents, isn't about right and wrong, it becomes about the law of love? And we sit down and we understand that there are going to be things that they have the freedom to make choices we disagree with, and we're going to love them instead of slamming a hammer down. That's what Paul's talking about here. How can I live in a way around people, the world around me, that protects their movement towards Jesus instead of creating divisions? I think it feels very good to our nature to have dividing lines in our life. I know what separates me from them. It's this issue. They're, I can't be around them because Paul's saying that should never be said. There should never be a time. The only time Paul gives and we'll study it later. The only time Paul says it's okay to separate from a person is if they're calling themselves a believer and living in express unrepentant sin. Paul says at that point we shouldn't eat with them. I know, that's a hard one. We're going to work through that one. What's it mean? I'm not sure. We'll get there. One thing at a time. But Paul's assertion to them is that maturity is actually measured on how we love, not what we know. If I'm really mature in Christ, I'm going to use what I know to build others up and to protect them. And if I find myself using what I know to defend my actions, instead of allowing what is best for others to govern my behavior, I'm actually immature. So maturity means I've come to learn that being right doesn't necessarily grant me rights. Being right doesn't necessarily grant me rights. Sometimes the most noble thing we can do in the kingdom is lay down our rights in order to love someone that's in a weaker position. But they're in a weaker position. Yes, they are. Paul says that clear. Weak conscience. They're, they're governed by superstitions and folklore. Let's go back to drinking. You're getting, you're invited over to somebody's house and you're, you're okay with alcohol and, and you, you don't mind taking a bottle of wine, but you know that that household doesn't. What do you do? 
Do you assert your rights and be like, it's a freedom, you can't prove it's not biblically? Or you, do you just decide, I'm, I'm going to drink iced tea that night and it's going to be okay? Because I'm going to honor them in their house. I'm not going to ever walk in and dishonor them because that would be crass. Young people, you're in a home where your mom and dad are like anti-tattoo. And you're like, Bible doesn't actually say that. I think they got weak faith. Guess what? They also pay the food bill. <laughs> but it's more than that. It's more than about you living at home. It's about honor and love. So in that moment, if you're living in someone's house and you're under their care and they have a different opinion, I would submit to you that the right answer is to say, I can hold my position, but I can honor yours too. Because me honoring you doesn't mean I'm acquiescing away from my position. It means I'm prioritizing love because whatever keeps us in unity is a higher calling, is what Paul teaches. I got to come back to the husband and wife marriage narrative. If we take this and we extrapolate it across, what Paul, what Paul would say is keeping unity together really matters. Learning to lay down our rights for the purpose of honoring each other matters. If you find yourself always right and you always have to be right, can I suggest to you that you really need to learn love? Because Paul just says, look, if you got to be right all the time, you haven't figured out how to love because Jesus does what? He lays his life down. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to be right. He came to give his life away. I know meat offered to idols feels like an incredibly irrelevant idea in our culture because, you know, we don't really know where our meat comes from. That's part of the problem with the whole, the whole food we eat. We have no idea, but what it, what it is relevant is teaching us to choose on areas that aren't black and white in Scripture, choose peace and choose unity. Because to make somebody, Paul says it so clear, even if in your rights, when you use those, you cause someone else to stumble, you're in sin. Which means you can be right and wrong. Being right doesn't give me a right to declare my rights. I gave my life to Jesus, and what I said to him was, I will spend for the rest of my days, I will spend my life building your church. Let's stand this morning. I was clearly wrong. I thought I had a nine-minute teaching. It was way longer than that, so we'll, we'll have to finish it. Um, Jesus, we love you. Lord, what an interesting reminder in the scriptures that being right doesn't mean we get our rights. So if you're here right now and you've been struggling with needing to be right, I just want you to put your hand over your heart or raise it up, whatever's most comfortable for you. Jesus, we just ask you to do a work of, of humility and love in us. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring deep conviction when we're being strong-headed and we're not thinking about someone else, and we're not loving them. When we're willing to step into behaviors that we know are damaging to people around us, will you throttle us? We want to be great at encouraging people towards you. We don't ever want to drag people down. May your face shine upon us this week. Thank you for the gift of your presence. We love you. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more great content, please visit us on the web at vintagecitychurch.com.